Hi there, I'm your host, Kieran Koritala. Would you like to attend a conference with some of the leading minds in higher education? Then join us at this year's N Squared event. At this event, we'll feature presentations and panels from the leading minds in higher education. We'll feature CEOs committed to higher education and panelists like chief information officers, chancellors, and presidents at leading universities and colleges. To learn more about this in-person event in Atlanta, check out nsquared.events. That's N-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot events. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eliminate Higher Education Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Karitala. I have with me a fellow entrepreneur and a leader in education, Eric Gibbs. Eric Gibbs serves as a president of Original, a text similarity detection software that assists K-12 districts and higher education institutions in safeguarding their academic integrity initiatives. Before joining Original, Eric served in various high-growth educational technology leadership roles of Apila, Stengage Learning, and Turnitin. Eric is an accomplished business executive with over 20 years of experience in education technology industry. He has helped provide text originality assessment services to over 7,700 universities or organizations in over 80 countries. As a data-driven, innovative leader with a proven track record in go-to-market strategy creation, Eric excels at various new market identification and mentorship in startup and high-growth organizations. He creates innovative and successful go-to-market strategies within K-12 and higher education markets. Eric, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Thank you, Karen, for having me. So let's get right into it. First of all, your name, original, it's just spelled O-U-R-I-G-I-N-A-L, very much like original, except for the U between U and R, is, for lack of a better word, very original. Not because of the word itself, but it's really because what you are really doing. Let me kind of back up a little bit about where we are in this post-COVID scenario, where students are all learning from homes, submitting their assignments from home, submitting their projects from home. And this whole plagiarism detection software has become more and more important in the last one year. But let's back into it a little bit to understand what led you to start Original, what was the journey like, and your experience since you started the company and uh, implemented it at 7,700 organizations. Yeah, absolutely, Karen. So Original has is, is really, uh, been around since September of 2020. It has a really rich, long lineage. Um, so it comes from two, two European tech similarity detection companies coming together. So almost 30 years of academic integrity, brain power, if you will. So Erkund, a Swedish organization founded out of Uppsala University, and Plagscan, a German anti-plagiarism company. So in 2020, the two merged together to form Original. Um, Original Inc. is what I launched in October of 20, 2019. And that was basically the opportunity was provided by to me from the management team at Erkund um, and Procuritas, who is our private equity firm. They saw the growth opportunity. 
Erkind had was the number one kind of growth and, and player and market leader in the Nordics in Europe, um, as well as then the, the leader in India with 1,067 universities, helping them safeguard their PhD and graduate programs. And so it was the natural fit really to bring that into the what is you know the largest developed education sector here in the US and Canada. Great. Let's talk about the technology itself, because I know that original as a company is only, um, I don't know, one year old or less than one year old, but your vision about plagiarism detection predates that. Uh, in fact, when I was doing my master's in, in University of Illinois 22 years ago, you know, so a couple of my friends got caught because they they copied some text from some project and thought that they can get away with it. The professor ran it through plagiarism detection software and uh, you know got them failed for that course. So there's a lot of plagiarism detection softwares that have been in existence for the last 20, 25 years. How is original different or better, obviously? Yeah, absolutely. So so first and foremost, I think the biggest misnomer in the market is that you know, and Karen, you, you, you touched upon plagiarism detection. So there is no plagiarism detection in the market. So there's any of the providers out there when they talk about plagiarism detection, it's just not the case. So when you think about what a service like Original does, um, it's a lot of re-education. So what we have to do is we talk to institutions, school district, corporations about what the service actually does. So first and foremost, I think what I'll do is I'll define kind of plagiarism, right? So plagiarism is to steal or pass off the idea or words as one's own, so without crediting source. So what we do is we take the individual artifact of an individual student or a researcher. Most of our individual students would submit through a learning management system. We get that individual artifact. We compare it against a vast amount of content. So 20 years worth of archived internet sources, scholarly journals and academic publications that we've procured from publishers, large database repositories, and then that 20 years worth of vast amount of content that students, researchers, and individual users have submitted. We take that fingerprint of that artifact and match it against that content. So what we're trying to do is to ideally match the artifact to the content repositories reducing the, the false positives so that you ask the del delta or the differences between the individual players or companies or competitors, our kind of secret sauce is we're not just exposing where there's matches, we're taking those false positives and actually reducing that for the individual evaluator, not just to see page eight um, from where there's a match of page eight or if Thomas Smith matches Thomas Smith from another institution, that's just digital noise and wasting the evaluator's time. So we're truly trying to expose where there's cause for concern for potential plagiarism or that digital noise, removing that. So that is what the algorithms are doing. It's, it's truly just taking that, that digital artifact that's being submitted by the, the student or learner and then comparing that against that vast amount of content that we've aggregated for the last 20 years. I always wondered about that, right? Because what if I write a 50-page thesis and accidentally slap in, I don't know, a couple of paragraphs from some scholarly article and I forget to cite that this was an external reference, now my entire document is considered plagiarized. So I like the idea that you are not only 
showing where the risk is, but also showing the impact of that risk, right? Is it just spread out or is it just a happenstance lack of citation or pure plagiarism where they took 49 pages from another article and put their name on it? Am I on the right track there? Exactly. So it's an efficiency component for the individual evaluator. And I say evaluator because it could be a researcher that's protecting themselves against research misconduct. The vast amount of, of individuals that we're working with are teachers, professors that are evaluating the student, the, the student's artifact. I think it also might be beneficial for your listeners to really kind of know kind of why, why we're actually um, having to address this. So we talk about plagiarism, but what is the issue, the, the reason why we're having to, to discuss this? So if I throw out a, you know, the best known study um, for academic integrity, this study was conducted between the fall of 2002 and the spring of 2015 by the late Donald, uh, Dr. Donald McCabe and the International Center for Academic Integrity. You know, it really starts to look at, it put this in the context of cheating, but also in the context of written assignments and plagiarism. So, you know, maybe this starts to kind of put in from scale, kind of to put in the idea of, of how big of an issue plagiarism and cheating was from 2000 to 2015. And then it really transitioned from the, the global pandemic when everything was online and remote, how big of an issue things are kind of starting to tip the scale with these new digital sharing economies or these academic file sharing sites that kind of tempt students to kind of curb or start taking their non-critical thinking skills and, and taking the easy way out. So yeah. if we think about this, so the, the sample size for this survey, and, and the survey was for students that actually were solicited for identifying, self-selecting, um, whether or not the respondents was the percentage who admitted cheating on test. So the sample size was set approximately 71,000 students, so not a small sample. Um, the number who admitted cheating on test was 39%. Percent who admitted cheating on written assignments. So this is something that an original could actually benefit, 62%. And the percent who admitted on written or total or, or test cheating was 68%. Um, so that's quite staggering. That's in higher education, right? Then we look at that in, in K-12, 70,000 high school students, and roughly, again, 64% admitted to cheating on a test, 58% admitted to plagiarism, and 95% said they, uh, they had participated in some form of cheating, whether it was on a test, plagiarism, or copying of homework. So, you know, this is starting to, you know, this is really starting to ask the question, do we need to find our moral compass? This is where something like an original starts to act as a deterrence and really starts pushing students to utilize critical thinking skills instead of just control C, control B with, you know, going to an internet site and, and claiming content as their own. Well, there's two parts to it. I think definitely I agree with you that plagiarism is a problem there's two parts of that discussion we, we need to have. One Number one is, is there inherently something wrong with the way we assess our students or we teach our students or educate, to be more clear, that is 
forcing students to be able to resort to those methods. I think that, that's number one. Is there a flaw in our education model itself that is forcing students to do it? And the second, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, why students cheat and specifically your use of, you know, word moral compass. Um, but let's put that for the next question. But let's talk about, you know, why students cheat? And is it because education system is not providing them the information they need? Or is it because some students are lazier than others? Or is there other inherent reason why they do it? There's a, a, an amazing researcher on the academic integrity side, Tricia Bertram Blonde at the UC Santa, San Diego, um, that has done an amazing job and amazing research. And, you know, she always says that cheating is common in education. It's changed over the years, both in character and body. Um, but the character of cheating refers not only to the appearance of the cheating, but also in the perceptions. But she recognizes that, you know, the educational system really has changed, whether it be society, technologies. Um, she also concluded that pretty much everything has changed about the ethics and, and ethical conduct. But what I kind of infer is that we tell students what they can't do instead of telling, telling them, you know, the approach of a teachable moment on the real guidelines of why they should be moral and ethical, right? So it's almost like instead of giving the, the carrot or an ethical primer, you just put in the syllabus, here's what you, you can't do. Here's, here's, here's the repercussions of our academic integrity policy, right? Um, I look back at this, I, I have an upcoming uh, junior in high school and there's no study skills, right? You tell a student, here's what we have to do going into high school, but there's no study skills to actually be successful. It's here's, here's the homework, here's the, here's the test, but not anything on how we actually should study to be successful. Um, so it's almost like there's no primer to actually provide to the students. And, you know, is that fair to institutions? Is it fair to schools? Maybe not. But I mean, I think this is just if we're having this conversation, maybe we need to put more focus on non-punitive and more kind of having the conversation at a grassroots level to have students be a part in, in the middle of the conversation um, instead of having the, the top-down approach, which is, you know, more punitive than nature. You know, I think, Karen, you, you asked the, the right questions, though, as far as, you know, where, where the conversation goes from here. The, the technology is there. It's a deterrent. Um, good course design is, is what I think is what, what individuals would say, you know, if you have more critical thinking involved, that, that's, that's a good thing. Move away from multiple choice questions. That's a good thing to, to get into it. But at the end of the day, I, I think we have to have a more open conversation that allows the student to be a part of the, the solution. What I want to get to is as much as we want to blame the student saying, well, they're just like they don't have the right moral compass or they're lazy. I think the issue that we have is, is that the system itself is not built in such a way that will enforce free thinking or enforce more open ended conversations like you're describing. Right. For example, if a teacher says, you know, read Thoreau's Walden and uh, write an essay on it, it's so easy to 
find a summary of on Thoreau's Walden or Kill a Mockingbird book and copy it because it's, you, access, you have access to that. But if a teacher says, you know, write your original essay on, I don't know, something on a bird on a tree or an island in the middle of a forest, stuff like that, then you're, it is forcing the students to be more original, but um, it also requires more work on teacher to do that understanding so that the teacher also can be original, you know, to borrow your, your name to do make that assessment. Right. So I think as much as we want to blame the students, it is also part of the education system to come up, be more creative and to provide more critical thinking resources to support the students in their journey. And, and, I, and I think to circle back as far as, you know, the focus groups that we've conducted. So, I mean, during my time previously, I think now that I'm in eight, eight nine years in the academic integrity um, space, I, I think when you listen to students, um, you do empathize with them. I think some instructors or, or teachers, they don't want to hear this, but you do empathize with them. And student behavior, let's be honest, is quite predictable. <laughs> They're going to wait until, you know, at, at an 11.45 p.m. deadline it's it's going to be you know 11:43 when they submit i mean i don't think that you know and and i don't think that's uh, unheard of right so we yep. know that student that time constraints are going to be an issue for students and if what what comes with time constraints you know is going to come um rush to, to try to write a paper or to complete that assignment so what's going to happen what is the human nature going to do it's going to be we try to complete that whatever whatever we can do to get that that assignment done and that can lend itself to potentially copying and pasting directly from the internet to, to get the the assignment you know check the box if you will i think also the other thing that i'm starting to hear and i just sat through a focus group uh, about a month ago the normalizing the cheating is, is in this digital sharing economy that with academic file websites, you know, what we heard from students is quite, quite scary and, and quite concerning. When you have a thousand person lecture hall using these academic file sharing sites, getting the answers and, you know, what we heard from students, 60 to 70% of the class is doing it, getting a GroupMe account sharing the answers and you're one of the, the more quote moral or ethically doing the right thing type of student. And you know that, that those 60 to 70% of the, the class have the right answers. You're teeter tottering on, do I get the right grade or do I get a good grade? I shouldn't say right grade. Do I get a good grade and do whatever I need to normalize quote normalize the behavior or do I do the right thing and, and do what I know is right and actually do what do my work and then take whatever the grade is? So, you know, I think we're up against some really, 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 really uh, difficult questions that we won't have time to answer here. But it, it's a, a different time and technology is is a great thing, but it also has, has proven to be a teeter totter that, that that is allowing students to to make some really hard decisions in that classroom. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was I was kind of uh, on the fence about whether we should talk about it, but you keep saying 
you know, moral and stuff like that. So I'll just probably talk about my recent reading of Plato's Republic. I'm not sure if you ever, if you like philosophy or if you read it, but the first chapter of Plato's Republic is Socrates asking an open-ended question on what is justice or how does a just person react? And he goes through like Thrasymachus and a few others uh, on many different versions of why doing the right thing is always the best thing, even if it means that uh, you make less money or you have less women or less power. But then one of Plato's brothers, I forget about him, he makes a very important point. The question is, is a person inherently just or unjust? And the, the the fable that they come up with is this concept that essentially the concept is like you described, uh, does a person want to do something just to get a good grade or does a person want to do something just because he wants to do the right thing, right? So basically what he describes is, and I'll get into original shortly, um, what he describes is what if somebody gets an invisible cloak and he can do, he or she can do whatever he or she wants Will this same person that was behaving justly until yesterday, the moment he gets an invisible cloak, will he tries to cheat? Will he try to steal? Will he try to, I don't know, um, abduct women because he can get away with it? So that was the one of the questions that Socrates kind of gets stumped under because, you know, the question is, do people do the right thing just because they want to do the right thing? And if so, what is the percentage of people that do that? Or if we subscribe to the notion that people only do the right thing, only if the consequence is they get appreciated for it, or they get better grade for it, you know, or they get recognized for it, then we should recognize that because once we know that people do the right thing only if there is consequence attached to it, then we should certainly recognize that and make sure that the people who do the right thing get recognized and people who do the wrong thing also get flagged. And that's why I think technologies like original are important. As much as we want to believe that everybody wants to act in the, in the right way, right? We should recognize that most people act even in the right way only to be recognized or get the consequence as a result of it. So I think you're right. We should recognize good behavior and make sure that they are um, accepted and they're given credit for, and also recognize bad behavior and make sure that those students know that that is not acceptable. Is that where we're going with original or am I on the right track there? Yeah, well, I think I, I will refocus one one more comment here and you know i think for me and this is the conversation that we that that my wife and i have with our son it is a moral compass conversation but it also is a large component of you know with my wife and i we look at the students matriculating into the labor force right so if we're having if you're taking the easy way out in a in a psych class or a business class and you need the skills that are foundational to build into what you're going to become essential skills for this job that you're matriculating into the labor force. If you don't have those skills, which we, you know, think about the conversations we're having today, employers all the time are saying, you're not providing institutions, you're not providing us with qualified graduates that have the skills we're needing to be successful. It's a lot of ramp up time. 
Um, now, I'm not saying that this is 100%, 70%, 60%. I think it could be a large, I think it could be a substantial issue when it comes to skills, right? These degrees we're granting, you're, you know, if, if students are cheating and don't have the skills, right? They don't have the competencies um, just because they're taking this, taking the easy way out. I think it does water down the degree, right, that they're being granted. And so, you know, it comes to a conversation that we need to have on, and certainly, you know, original, we're we're one part of kind of that checkbox for accreditation and academic integrity and Mm -hmm. kind of the quality is part of that conversation. So we are, you know, that's where we play in in the institutional uh, conversation. But I think that's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger issue, right, of being able to address the skills and the qualifications that you are actually granting that degree as individuals exit your program. Um, It's concerning. And I'm not saying that individual instructors are turning a blind eye, but I will will use the normalizing cheating every single day of the week based upon the focus groups and the conversations that we're hearing um, on a daily basis. Hi there, I'm your host, Kieran Kuritala. Would you like to attend a conference with some of the leading minds in higher education? Then join us at this year's N Squared event. At this event, we'll feature presentations and panels from the leading minds in higher education. We'll feature CEOs committed to higher education and panelists like chief information officers, chancellors and presidents at leading universities and colleges. To learn more about this in-person event in Atlanta, check out nsquared.events. That's N-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot events. You know, subscribing to the idea that people do the right thing only if you attach consequences to it, your idea is correct. Like, I talk to my kids all the time about this too. My son is a rising senior in high school and my daughter is entering high school. And the concept of education being a scaffolding on each other and if you don't lay the right foundations your you know your growth will be limited is is actually the right conversation and that's that's the right way to frame it but i also want to take a step back a little bit and talk about a couple of ideas for original right one idea for original is yes it is doing a detection of uh, plagiarism and protecting the integrity of education. I like that. But are there ideas to preempt the problem? Because right now in Grammarly, for example, there are tools where you can not only check for grammar, but it also checks for uh, plagiarism detection. I don't, I'm pretty sure it's not as sophisticated as yours is, but I think that if we can implement something like that in their assignment software or LMS software so that students can be preempted on some of those issues, then I think that will also help them be more cautious when they start doing something like this, because ultimately we want to help them become better learners. And if that means that we preempt these problems instead of just giving them an F grade when they submit it, show them that before they submit it, tell them that, hey, you're what you're about to submit, you're going to get an F grade based on the software. So the concept is how can original be used for student success so that instead of just punitive measures for the students? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, that's part of the, the conversation. So we want to use this in a formative use case. So I think when the tools like original, so this text similarity detection was first was first created 22 years ago, the tools were the plagiarism police, right? That's what the, the tools were built for. It was instructors found collusion in the classroom. The, the technology was quite, quite basic and elementary. It was just checking to see if there was a, a similarity within the, the class. And it's morphed into this you know, vast amount of content that we're now checking against um, at scale and doing it quite quickly in in matter of minutes, being able to to check that check uh, amongst the the patterns and match content. The way that we want to utilize this has changed from those since those twenty two years. So today, our best practice is being able to have a student submit via the LMS or or natively to be able then to submit a first draft. And and in doing this, Karen, remember we talked about student behavior being quite predictable. Um, what we want that student to do and think about is if the assignment is due on Friday night, submit it on Monday, <laughs> get your similarity report, see what the, the text matches are, look to see if it was properly cited. So you can click on within the, the similarity, the original similarity report, brackets, quotes, see where the actual citations were, see if it's properly cited. Go back in, change it if you've miscited it. Um, so you have this full disclosure with the student and instructor. So we're trying to build upon this trust, right? So empathy is part of this conversation. Um, resubmit it Wednesday upon your next draft. So we are trying to build in this formative use case to, to be able to really start having the conversation with the student. Um, and, and I think the other conversation is most tools that have been utilized over time if you have a 67% similarity score, again, we're not detecting plagiarism. We have to re-educate the market to understand that 67% similarity does not mean it's 67% plagiarized. I would encourage anybody to go out on Twitter, put in plagiarism detection on, and you will, you will see what type of empathy I'm talking about. Students are scared to death. They're trying to game the system and say, well, my similarity score was 57%. I'm having to resubmit it. And so hatred for, for tech similarity detection scores is unwarranted because it just needs to have understanding of what the tool actually does. So long, longer term, Karen, what we want to be able to do is build in tools to be able then to to provide to students. So we have this new functionality that was released in March that is authorship recognition um, or authorship authenticity. So being able to compare against students' prior submissions to be able to validate if the student wrote, right? So being able to do this. Now that is punitive by nature. So I'm not going, I'm not going to sit here and try to, to sell you on the, the student success component of that. But longer term, you could turn that over into a, a success metric. And sure. what I mean by that is we're comparing multiple, multiple metrics to be able to see, did this student have, you know, their reading level, their sentence length, did they use different words? You could actually show value, value add over time. And time could be, you know, longitudinally a class, or it could be as they matriculate out of a program. 
Um, so, you know, we're collecting a lot of data on that student, and this could actually be provided back and show that value add. So this is something that, you know, is, is, is could be very exciting and show that student success over time. Yeah, I think um, you're thinking the right way, definitely. I like the idea that you're encouraging the students to submit, you know, instead of making it punitive, like you're describing and saying, yeah, we caught you red-handed, you know, who who benefits from that? Nobody benefits if right. the student gets an F grade. Definitely not the student, definitely not the instructor, and definitely not the education institution. But everybody benefits if a student learns more and gets the tools necessary. And going back to that, you know, invisible cloak analogy, once the student knows that he's no longer an invisible cloak, right, um, then he or she will be more careful, you know, in, in how he operates. Um, that's why we have radars on the roads or, you know, video cameras in the stores when is that kind of breaks that invisible cloak of uh, cheating. So I think you are touching up on the right topics here. And I like the fact that original is thinking about student success and also making sure that students are not like red flagged for this, but it's really just saying that, hey, we just found these issues with citations potentially or others. But I have an interesting question as you talked about it. I think you touched upon it. So what if, you know, 100 students in this classroom collude, right? And say one of the student writes it, you know, originally, uh, using your word, and he shares it with all the 99 students. And all the 99 st students take it, make some clones of it, right? And they all submit it at 12 a.m. midnight. What happens then? How does original protect against that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the things, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use an example within Moodle, let's say. So if an instructor is using Moodle, there's functionality that allows them to resubmit after the due date. So for example, we're checking amongst those hundred students, you resubmit at, there's a functionality that says resubmit after close that would allow the, the instructor to resubmit or the, the system to resubmit all 100 papers to check for that collusion. So ideally what we're doing then is all 100, you know, that was 99 students. So myself, I'm counting, I submit my paper. I check against all those, those other 99. It's not coming back against those, those 99 students. Um, but upon the close, then that kind of anti-collusion uh, tool or functionality kicks in. And then what you're starting to see is then a hundred of those students will actually then be identified. Um, so I like I like to say that um, you know you you think you might be able to fool the the tool and there are capabilities for us to detect paraphrasing. So if you change the words around, the system is is smart enough. The machine learning picks up or the algorithm picks up the individual differences in the in the match. So we'll highlight where where the words are different. If I removed a word, it's going to color coordinate where the actual word was removed and it, and display that to the individual evaluator. Um, so you know the system is quite intelligent. There's a lot a lot of heavy lifting that goes on in the back end um, within those minutes of us actually trying to figure out what those matches are, what the manipulations are. And I use that word manipulations because if you paraphrase or change things around, the system's trying to figure it, then, you know, kind of mix and match. And the best way to think about this is 
characters to words, words to languages. So we're actually doing cross language detection as well. So if you write, if you used a uh, if you used a, a Spanish journal and you took Google Translate and translated it back to English, it's going to then expose that as well, and then it'll actually then then return that similarity report back to the individual evaluator. That's great. So it looks like you've covered a lot of ground here. Um, definitely looking at plagiarism detection as not something that's punitive, but it's really more about remediation or supportive or complementary for learning, which is, I think, the right way to do. But let's take a step back. I want to understand, like, what made you commit yourself to this journey? Uh, because it's not like you started original in September, you know, by just waking up in the morning, right? This this must be something that you've been working on before and uh, you've been thinking about this idea. So I wanna hear the backstory on what made you commit to this and uh, how you arrived at original. Yeah, so that that's a, uh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would say my passion is really kind of in, in the, the, the startup environment. I've had my fair share of obstacles, setbacks and failures layoffs, terminations, ed, ed tech, you know, the startup environment lends itself to everything under the moon and, and back, right? So you're in marketing, you're in operations, you're in customer support, you're in sales, business development, janitorial services. It, it's everything. I, I can't overstate how much I enjoy that. And it's just, a you know, the, the best part about that, Karen, is the team. It, it, it comes to, it comes to, even though Irkind at the time, and now original is a you know a high growth company you know we're just starting out here in north america with the growth and you know i i like to say that we're not the market leader here in north america but certainly we're helping institutions modernize their academic integrity approach and so what i like to do is to take that approach and in my background and in intro in bio it basically is wash, rinse, and repeat the ed tech failures that I've done and, and the successes, right? So I know the potholes to avoid. And it's fun kind of bringing that team and showing them the, those successes. So it's really kind of that mentorship that I like. Um, and so with Original, they have one of the best products I've seen when it comes to tech similarity detection. And that was va validated it, from the European Network of Academic Integrity in a research study they did last February. It sh was shown to be one of the most optimized tools um, from coverage and effectiveness. And that study is widely available in the uh, Academic Integrity website for the uh, ENAI. So, you know, I think for me, it's the passion for education. Um, it's the, you know, since I'm a first generation college graduate, I've really said I've never kind of gotten out of college. It's, it's the passion for, for education, the lifelong learning. I understand adversity, which in the startup environment, if you can't kind of understand adversity, change and kind of humanizing the success, it just goes in my blood. So it's kind of hard to, to all wrap into one, but I really appreciate the opportunity that Procuritas and the management team gave to me. And it's been, you know, the last two years, you know, minus the, the global pandemic, um, we've had an amazing run and, and I just can't wait to, to see what the future brings for original. I can see your passion in your, in higher education, not only in higher education, but also the startup environment. You know, I think 
You know, I have similar experiences with higher education. I've started, this is my second uh, company that I started. I've had this for 11 years. I'm not sure like how much of it is adversity, but it's really just more about scalability. That's what I struggle most with higher education because ultimately it's not like Facebook where you can have like a billion customers. You'll, right. Your addressable market is at best case scenario, three to 4,000 universities, right? As much as we want to look at students as customers, they have been notoriously hard to get paid from. But even in K through 12, like parents spend a lot of money on a lot of stupid stuff, but uh, for some reason they are, they're reluctant to pay for services, especially software services. So, but that's for a later podcast, but you're right. I think ultimately what we are, you know, in here for is not because to make a lot of money, but it's really about, you know, being able to focus our vision on what we're passionate about, which is higher education. So let's talk about that. Where do you see higher education going in the next five to 10 years? What are some of the big picture things that you are tracking uh, either in your domain, which is uh, plagiarism detection or, or similarity detection to be more precise or others? Like where do you see student learning going um, based on what you're seeing so far? Yeah, I mean, think about five to 10 years. That seems like ages, right? I mean, if you if you would have asked me that in uh, 20, 2019, I think that would have been an easy question to answer um, because it seems like what happened over the last year has just been remarkable. I mean, we've, we've been trying to get individuals to go to an e-learning and to transition into more, more online learning. And um, unfortunately, you know, individuals didn't have a chance to transition. It was more of a foot push you know, welcome to online and remote learning as of as of April 2020. I think that technology is not going to be single handedly probably the the to solve all the issues. I would say for me, I think that it's probably going to be a multifaceted approach in, in student learning. Right. So for us in, in the, the tech similarity detection we're going to keep optimizing. So I think we have to look at how we actually keep up with the trends, right? So, so keeping up with these digital sharing economy, these academic file sharing, so small nuances in keeping the, the, the algorithm and, the, and the, the tool kind of ahead of the game. That's always going to be number one in reliability of service. So for, for the tools that we're looking at at complementing, you know, maybe there's a way to actually look at a corporate space. So we're doing really, really great jobs at academic. Um, but if you turn the model upside down, um, maybe we want to see where there's plagiarism, right? So with legal and regulatory, so in law firms where there's cases and precedents. So there's ways to actually see growth in the corporate space for, for an original. That makes perfect sense. Um, but there's still, I mean, I, I think for us, Think about if we're just now getting our, our shot here in the North American market, LATAM is wide open. That room for growth has three to five years written all over it. So um, I, I think as long as we can gain the trust of our, of our clients, um, show that the tool is truly one of the best on the market, we need to probably stay in our lane on that one. There will be small enhancements that we'll be able to provide, you know, with some additional AI with this, as I discussed with the, the authorship recognition. 
where we're going with, with learning, you know, I, I don't even think I, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, I don't know that I can even go there. Um, I'm hoping, you know, I've, I have had the conversations with a couple of companies I'm, I'm in conversations with, you know, gamification and, and elementary. I think that's, that's going to be key to get more students involved, get more incentives. I think what, what happened last year is, was, a, was, was horrific for elementary students, right? I mean, you can't just throw Zoom in and expect, <laughs> expect to have a good outcome. Um, so I'm hoping that gamification can be more involved in the elementary schools. We know incentives work. Um, students are, those little minds are so eager to learn. So if we put the right incentives in a gamification, with, with the gamification, I think that, man, there's so, the opportunities are endless for us. Yeah, I think um, you're right to look at the authenticity detection on other areas also, because come to mind, there's a lo- lot of areas where there's an opportunity, especially when people start submitting their resumes. You know, there's so much cheating there, and I have no respect for that because, you know, we had to go through hundreds of resumes to find the two people that have actually written yes. every word of it. And uh, I think there's also, when you start submitting like essays or abstracts for conferences or other original submissions, I'm not even sure how much of that is original. So I think you're right to look at other verticals, especially in the post-secondary area, thesis. So there's so much opportunity here for you. And uh, I really appreciate everything you're doing. Eric, I wish we had two more hours. We would have gone through the nitty gritty of technology for original and your leadership. I really appreciate you joining the podcast and sharing your vision, your details, and most importantly, thank you for your leadership, supporting students in their journey. Yeah, thank you again, Karen. And more importantly, thank you for your listeners for spending the time with us. Cool. Well, uh, you're welcome to join our podcast anytime. Listeners will include notes about original, Eric's leadership, and a few other links for your consideration. Thanks again for tuning into Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast. And share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.